Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Episode 99 is here and it's an important one for me to cover before our short break. I have great respect and admiration for the culture and history of the native peoples of America and today's case highlights just one of the modern struggles still facing many indigenous people. Full disclaimer, this case involves terrible crimes against children, so listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. A group of Native Americans known as the Dean settled into the American Southwest as a tribe of hunter and gatherers. They were a peaceful people open to communication and trade with other Native American tribes and were taught how to farm by the Pueblo tribe. The ability to master farming, especially in the desert, meant the tribe could establish permanent settlements and its numbers grew over the centuries. They subsided on corn, beans, and squash, which they prepared into hundreds of different nutrient-rich meals. When Spanish explorers came in contact with the tribes during the 16th century, they named them the Navajo, which was a loose version of the Dean word for farm field, as the Spanish were impressed by the tribe's farming abilities. The Spanish introduced livestock to the Dean, mainly sheep and goats, which expanded their diet and introduced the tribe to textile production. Women of the Dean became adept at making beautiful blankets with dyed wool and used them as a staple in trade with other native tribes and settlers to the region. While the tribe did get involved in armed conflicts, it wasn't until westward expansion brought waves of settlers to their land that the tribe, now known as the Navajo, faced a major crisis. Like many other tribes, they were forced by the government to abandon their ancestral lands and march 300 miles over difficult terrain in what is referred to as the Long Walk. The terminus of their march was a desolate area of land, and none of the food or provisions promised them upon arrival was given to them. Showing a strength achieved from centuries of living in the rough conditions of the American Southwest, the Navajo adapted to their new lands and made the best of their lives. During World War II, Navajo soldiers were employed to send encoded messages using the Navajo dialect and grammar as a base for the code. The complex rules and structure of the language succeeded in confusing the Japanese and stands as the only military code known to never be broken by an enemy. Despite their considerable contributions to the war effort, many of the Navajo Windtalkers were ordered to keep their accolades secret in case the U.S. needed to utilize the code during the Cold War. This led to many of the soldiers' efforts going unrecognized for decades. It wasn't until 2001, over 50 years after their heroic deeds, that any member of the Navajo were recognized with high-level military awards. The U.S. government has a long history of failure to do right by the Native people of America. In 2016, this was once again highlighted in the case of the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of an 11-year-old girl of the Navajo tribe. This is the case of Ashlyn Mike. Ashlyn Mike was born on November 13, 2004 in Farmington, New Mexico. 
Her parents are Pamela Foster and Gary Mike. She was born into a long line of Navajo clans with both of her grandparents belonging to long-standing clans. On May 2nd, 2016, at around 4 p.m., Ashlyn and her nine-year-old brother, Ian Mike, rode the bus home from school. They got off the bus in Shiprock, New Mexico, a part of the Navajo reservation. The town is named for a large rock formation that towers out of the desert just outside the town. Spanish explorers thought the formation looked like a giant clipper ship and named the feature Shiprock. One of Ashland's older sisters, Graceland, had walked away from the bus stop when a man in a red van stopped and asked her if she needed a ride. The 12-year-old knew better than to get into a van with a stranger and declined his offer. The van continued down the road and stopped by a canal near the bus stop. Ashland and Ian were playing in the canal and the man offered them a ride in his van. Ian would later say they didn't want to go at first, but Ashlyn had hurt her foot and so they accepted the offer of a ride home. Ian would later tell investigators that the man started driving away from their house and immediately Ashlyn and him knew something was wrong. They began holding hands and then the van steered off the main road and onto a rough dirt road south of the Shiprock Formation. And just to take a little break here, the suspect in this case is also going to be a member of the Navajo tribe which probably made Ashlyn and Ian trust him a little bit more. I know ever since the 80s, we've taught stranger danger to kids. And had this been a random white guy driving in the reservation in a red van, even with Ashlyn's hurt foot, I don't think the two of them likely would have got into the van. But being that this guy is a member of the, the Navajo tribe, it, there's probably some built-in trust there that sometimes these indigenous people see other members of their tribe as, as trusted, uh, don't really see them as strangers. They're all supposed to look out for each other. And so it may have been a situation where because the suspect in this case is a, a Native American member of the Navajo tribe, they just might have trusted to get into the van because I think when I first read it I, I didn't know the suspect yet I was just researching the case I, I thought this is a situation where likely at 11 years old Ashlyn for sure would know well enough not to get into a van with a complete stranger and so it made me think at that moment that maybe there was some type of a trust built in. Now I thought it was maybe somebody that they actually knew because that does happen where it's not completely stranger danger. It's some type of a family friend or a friend of a stepfather or something along those lines. Somebody that they might have some built in level of trust. So I kind of thought maybe the suspect would be closer related at least somebody they would have met in the past or had a conversation with in the past now that's not going to turn out to be true but like i said it is going to turn out to be a member of the navajo tribe of part of this shiprock nation so again there may have been some built-in trust i don't know if ashland would have had contact or conversation with this man before but clearly unfortunately as soon as they got in that van and and the guy started driving away from their house off into the desert, they knew things were going to go very bad. And Graceland grew worried when her brother and sister didn't come home. The area that had been playing was out of sight from where she had been when the man in the van stopped off for a ride. 
So while she didn't see her siblings get into the van, as more time passed, her fear level rose. Their father, Gary, was at work, and she didn't want to bother him, so she called her mother, Pamela, but she lived in Redlands, California. Sensing the urgency and fear in her daughter's voice, Pamela hung up the phone with Graceland and called the Navajo Nation Police Department in Shiprock to report Ashlyn and Ian as missing. When the phone was picked up at the police department, what should have happened was an all-out mobilization of every law enforcement resource in the area. In most kidnappings, the child is harmed or killed within the first three hours of the abduction, so authorities needed to work quickly to locate the suspect vehicle and the missing children. And that's just a fact based on thousands of cases studied by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They're the premier agency that oversees kidnapping cases and so they've done all the research and I think it's something like 76% of children who are kidnapped in a stranger abduction are killed within the first three hours. So we talk about the the golden in a homicide investigation that's kind of 48 hours is that time period in which if you don't have it solved within 48 hours it gets very difficult. Uh, there's been the, the golden 24 hours that's been talked about in, in kidnapping or abduction cases, but in reality, it's as, it's as short as three hours. If, if you're not all out sending everybody to try to locate this missing child, it's more often than not in the case, and more than three quarters of the time, that that missing child will be killed within those first three hours. So again, when when Pamela calls from California, she can't do anything where she's at other than call. So she's calling this department, hoping they're gonna understand, my kids got off the school bus, they didn't come home, their older sister saw a man in a van that tried to pick her up, and she wouldn't go with them, but now these kids are missing and the van is missing, somebody took my children. But unfortunately, Pamela's nightmare was only going to get worse as her call for help resulted in her being put on hold numerous times as she was told there was a severe staff shortage that day with only one officer working for the department and he was busy on another call. And this is, I think, a nightmare for a lot of people. Most people in their life will never call 911 for an actual emergency. And when they do, they kind of base it off what they've seen in TV or movies where the dispatcher picks up the phone and within minutes the police are in action doing whatever they need to do. And unfortunately, in this case, due to lack of staffing and whatever it might be, she's clearly not getting the response that she had hoped for. And it did say that a lot of these reservation police departments, the the dispatcher is doubling as a secretary, as a person who you know handles people as they walk in the door. They also handle records uh, at the police department. So they're doing like the job of like 10 people at one. And they're not even often taking information in, and putting it in a computer system. They're literally writing stuff down on a white legal pad and then using a two-way radio to radio the officer that they have a call and where to go to and in the modern day and age ever since i started policing in 2005 we had computers in the in the squad cars that had messaging capabilities internet capabilities 
dispatch could send information to our call that we could get information for. If we ran a license plate, that information came back, depending on which dispatch software we were using. But there was a lot of information, and, and a few times, of course, it's technology, so it would go down, and, and we would call it dispatch being on pen and paper, and they would have to write down information from every traffic stop, and then later they'd have to enter it all into the computer, but it was those those few hours every year, it seemed like, where the, the system would go down. It might happen two, three, four days out of the year where it would go down for a few hours. It, it was It was like going back to policing in the 60s or 70s and it was difficult and this is what they're dealing with 24 7 so while there's going to be a lot of blame thrown at the Shiprock Reservation Police Department here you know some of it is not their fault some of it is but some of it is just and we'll talk about it staffing levels equipment all that kind of stuff and not being able to drive out and look for her children herself Pamela went to social media and posted a cry for help from friends and relatives she described the red van and the man Graceland had spoken with and asked for everyone to start looking at for the children. Gary Mike heard about his missing children and left work and drove to the police department to officially file a missing child report. It was 6.53 p.m. and the three-hour window was about to expire and law enforcement had even started to look for Ian or Ashlyn. And there wasn't an actual time. There's, there's a dozen or so articles about this case. There wasn't an actual time stamp for when the kids went missing uh, at least that I could find so being that they'd gotten out of school just as a completely conservative number I went with about 4 p.m. for likely when they were abducted I mean depending if the school gets out earlier it could be even earlier but they were elementary school children which usually sometime between three and four the school day is done and they would have rolled the bus home but I can't imagine it would have been much later than 4 o'clock that this incident occurred. And so by 6.53, like I said, we're approaching that, that already that three-hour window. At 7.15 p.m., a couple driving on the highway into Shiprock noticed a young boy walking along the side of the road, and it was nine-year-old Ian. He shared with the couple that he and his sister had been taken by a man, and they had been driven out to the desert, and he didn't know what happened to his sister. The couple drove him to the Shiprock Police Department where he was reunited with his father. But Ashen was still missing and Ian's story confirmed she had been the victim of kidnapping and potentially worse. And to just understand the, the structure of the departments here, from what I understood from the articles, Shiprock, New Mexico is on the Navajo Reservation. So the Shiprock Police Department is part of the tribal police organization that covers the entire reservation. So they are just like a precinct of the entire reservation tribal police. And because of their size, they really usually only have one officer working. He or she is covering a very large area. And because this is on reservation land, then law enforcement duties fall to the FBI for investigating major crimes. And right across reservation, a little further away, is Farmington, New Mexico. That's not part of the reservation, so that's regular police. And it's not always the case where there's a lot of communication or cooperation or coordination between the two departments. And we're going to see, there was, there was a case that this 
we'll talk about the the writer and the for Esquire that did a really nice piece on this but she talked about when she first arrived there was this horse that was on the outskirts of town and the horse had a obviously broken leg was was clearly in pain was clearly suffering and because of jurisdictional issues of whose land the horse was on who had the authority or responsibility to to go put the horse out of its misery the horse suffered for i think it was something like five days before it was finally euthanized and the the writer just said you just can't this this is what they deal with on a regular basis the 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 people in this town if if something happens on one side of the town or the other it becomes a jurisdictional nightmare so when i'm talking about shiprock pd i'm talking about part of the Navajo Reservation Tribal Police, and I'm talking about later here Farmington PD, that's going to be civilian police off the reservation. And so the couple that found Ian drove him to the Shiprock PD where he's reunited with his father, but Ashlyn was still missing and Ian's story confirmed she had been a victim of kidnapping and potentially worse. An Amber Alert should have been issued when Pamela Foster called Shiprock PD just minutes after the abduction, but Shiprock PD is part of the Tribal Reservation Police Force, and an Amber Alert is a grueling process that involves using the FBI. Staffing shortages and the lack of an actual missing persons report complicated the issue. And again, Amber Alerts are not something to be taken lightly, and I'm not saying that in this case that was what caused the issues but it can be difficult if somebody's just calling from say california so they're not on scene they don't exactly know what's going on they're getting all their information third hand from a 12 year old so again when pamela calls yes things should have happened but at the same time there are complications that i that i'm willing to to cut some breaks to the police department for for how they handled this and by 8 p.m., family members were desperate. They had been out looking for Ashlyn, but were not getting any police assistance. One of Ashlyn's aunts called Farmington, New Mexico Police Department to see if they had been notified of the case, and the dispatcher there said they were unaware of any missing children and had yet to see an Amber Alert. She called back 30 minutes later, and the dispatcher still wasn't aware of the now-confirmed abduction and recommended she contact the Shiprock PD. So again, this is what we're talking about. You've got this civilian police department just outside the reservation. They should have been the first ones contacted by Shiprock PD as soon as this missing persons, either the original call from Pamela or at least when Gary Mike came in to report his children as missing. Call should have gone out to all the local nearby police departments, be on the lookout for a red or in this case maroon van driven by you know, they've got a, a rough description uh, from Ian at this point. So the, the better staffed, better equipped Farmington PD could have been at least out helping look for this van, look for these children, or, or in this case now it's just Ashlyn who's missing. But still, there should have been something because at this point, I think we still just have one officer at Shiprock PD that's now trying to work this case. And he or she has to come back to the department to take the missing persons report from Gary Mike. So at the, at that point, this officer is not able to be out looking for Ashlyn or the suspect vehicle. So in reality, it is really just the family that's looking for Ashlyn. And that's when family members did head out to look for Ashlyn. And Ian had given them some rough directions to where he 
thought he was led out of the van, but they weren't driving directions, but visual aids such as where he saw cows or horses. And the directions were hard to follow, and with night approaching, the search was getting impossible. So again, Ian's nine. He's not going to know, hey, we took a right on Shiprock Road and a left on Gulch Run something another. You know, he, he doesn't know the names of these streets. He doesn't even know roughly distance that the van traveled. Does Probably doesn't have a great concept of how much time it took. He was looking out, seeing cows or horses so that was the best he could do was say you know there was cows on the left and then there's horses ahead and then we turned and then there was some horses straight ahead or, or whatever it might be so they're, they're trying to follow these these directions but it's also possible that as night approached these animals would have moved and so it's it's as, with losing the light it's getting impossible to find where ian was let out where ashland might be Rick Nez, the leader of the Shiprock chapter of the Navajo, set up a command post at the city hall. Bottles of water and snacks for searchers were stockpiled, and search parties were organized and sent out to areas around the rock formation. At 9.07 p.m., the Navajo Nation Police Department finally requested the FBI to issue an Amber Alert for Ashland and the Red Van. This request was made five hours after she was taken, and it would still take more time to actually issue the alert. The FBI is not accustomed to issuing Amber Alerts, as it is a procedure usually carried out by state, county, or local officials utilizing a nationwide system. The FBI received the request, but had to call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for guidance. Eventually, it was determined the alert should be issued by the New Mexico State Police. And, and again, this is where jurisdictional issues, this is where people who aren't used to doing this... Uh, this happened a lot when I was a police officer with our highway patrol here in Minnesota. They mainly deal with traffic-related incidents on the interstates and, high and state highways. And so if they got dispatched to, say, some type of a, a domestic, an actual crime, they, they weren't very familiar with investigating those. Their specialty was traffic and vehicle-related stuff. So they would call the, whatever local department the crime actually occurred in to come out and, and do the investigation and that's that's like the FBI they've got their specialties the things that they investigate terrorism and and white collar crime and and different things like that they're and they respond and assist after the fact in a lot of these kidnapping cases or in the cases of bank robberies whatever it might be but they're not usually the boots on the ground when this first happens they're not the people that put some of these early procedures into place so i'm sure a call went into the fbi to somebody who said well i've never issued an amber alert i don't even know if that's something we can do so they call somebody else and every time they call somebody they have to explain the story tell them what's going on tell them what's ha happened already and then that person calls somebody else eventually they're going to call the uh, ncmec NICMAC, the national center for missing and exploited children and they're going to say hey we've got this child who's missing how do we get an amber alert out for this child so after all this runaround it's finally going to go back to the new mexico state police who aren't supposed to issue amber alerts for stuff that occurs on federal land which is the reservation but ultimately that's what ends up happening so it takes till 2 30 in the morning which is almost 11 hours after ashton was abducted before people's phones in shiprock and farmington finally alerted residents of the abduction and missing child and if you think about it 
we talked about three hours is your, your golden window in which the child might still be alive. And it's not just the child might still be alive, it's the distance somebody can travel. In three hours, in most cases, you can be in another state, which is gonna complicate things. In 11 hours, depending on where you are and what access to major interstates you have, you can be halfway across America in 11 hours. So this delay is inexcusable, and really it's something we'll talk about later on. The epidemic of missing and murdered Native Americans in America is something that has been the topic of discussion for some time. The 2017 movie Wind River portrayed the difficulty Native people face when reporting their children or loved ones as missing. The reports are often dismissed, ignored, and forgotten. And even when the bodies of the missing person are found, the investigation is often short and woefully ineffective. And if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend Wind River. The acting is great. The story is gut-wrenching, but it sends a very strong message about how indigenous people in America are still being treated by whether it be the government or, in this case, it's a, a private company. And it's a... It's not a true story, and it's not even based off a true story from what I can tell, but it's, it's a very well written, and I can 100% see something like this happening on a reservation land. And so if you haven't seen it, check out Wind River. Very powerful, very good movie. And this has led to attempts to address the issues. According to an article written by Rachel Monroe for Esquire magazine, just three weeks before this kidnapping, a group of officials had met in Texas to discuss how to better respond to kidnappings and missing children from federal reservation lands. Reservation police departments are notoriously understaffed, underpaid, and lack modern training and equipment. The lands that they cover can be extremely large, barren, and difficult to patrol. Due to low wages and the difficulty of the job, the turnover rate of tribal officers is also an issue. Most officers will work just long enough to get the experience they need to get hired by a non-reservation department with better staffing, pay, and equipment. And this might not be as much of an issue today as it was when this article was written. I know a lot of police departments across the country are struggling to staff, but back when I first started in law enforcement in 2005, there was a lot of officers that had to go work for either an out-of-state smaller department or a smaller department in out-state Minnesota where you would get one, two, three years of experience under your belt before you could get hired by a major suburban department that would pay better, have better equipment, all that kind of stuff. And so these smaller departments were used to, basically by the time you have somebody actually trained up and ready to patrol on their own, they're you're almost having to start over again because that person's going off to another job. And it's it's difficult, it's something that they've had to work with for years and years. And now those departments are wishing that that was the case because they're not getting anybody to, to come apply for them because it's easier for people to get a job right out into these suburban departments. So again, these reservation police departments are facing all types of issues. And this combined with jurisdictional issues and sometimes bad blood between reservation and non-reservation departments has created a nightmare scenario when timely situations such as a kidnapping arise. It is not that efforts haven't been made to better the situation, but progress has been slow or stalled out at many times. And this is exactly what that meeting was about three weeks before Ashland's kidnapping, but once again, a Native American child paid the price. 
Ashlyn's lifeless body was found by family during the daylight hours the next day. The 11-year-old had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and beaten with a tire iron in the face and head. It was likely she was still alive when the suspect left her in the rocks and walked back to his van. And from there, he kicked Ian out of the van and fled the scene. With the investigation finally gaining traction, law enforcement was able to track down the van based on information provided by Graceland. Through the registration, they were able to track it to a man named Tom Begay Jr., a member of the Navajo Nation. Ian identified the man as the suspect who drove Ashland and him into the desert. Not much is publicly available about Tom Begay Jr. According to research, he and his brother were living together in their family's rundown home in 2014 when their parents died. The two men were reported to have severely low IQs, and when members of a nearby church discovered the men in the home, it was barely livable and the men lived on a diet of breakfast cereal. Members of the church took the men into their homes and did the best to help to provide for them. A woman gave Tom Begay Jr. permission to use the maroon van he drove on the day of the kidnapping. The FBI traced the van to that woman, and she in turn told agents about Tom Begay Jr. and the man from the church who took him in, Rufus Dickey. After talking with Rufus at his home, he directed agents to a sweat lodge, where Tom was participating in a sweat lodge ritual for the safe return of Ashland. Agents and police arrested Tom at the sweat lodge, and he was brought to the Shiprock PD for questioning. Tom admitted to investigators that he drove around that day looking for a young girl, and after failing to pick up Graceland, he picked up Ashland and Ian. He told them he drove to the location of the assault because he knew it was an area that not a lot of people frequented. He said that he grabbed a tire iron from the back of the van and hid it in his jacket so the children could not see it. He then told Ashton to get out of the van and come with him while he told Ian to stay in the van. After walking Ashton to a remote location, he sexually assaulted her and then strangled her. He struck her in the head twice with a tire iron and then walked away. He told authorities that Ashton was still moving when he walked away from her. He told Ian to get out of the van and drove off leaving the critically wounded Ashland and Ian in the rough terrain. Tom Begay Jr. was indicted by a federal grand jury on May 24, 2016. There were six crimes including first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, two counts of sexual abuse against a minor resulting in death, and two counts of kidnapping. At a June 7, 2016 hearing, Tom pled not guilty to the charges against him. He was ordered to undergo a psychological evaluation to determine his capability of standing trial for his crimes. That evaluation was completed, and on October 11, 2016, the report was filed, and it was determined he was competent to stand trial. And I know we've talked about these before, these psychological evaluations. As I mentioned, Tom, it didn't give an exact number, but it said that Tom and his brother had extremely low IQs. And... We've seen this in several of our cases where the suspects with these extremely low IQs, they have difficulty functioning in society, and often when they get into their their 20s, and I believe Tom's in his mid-20s when this occurs, they still have the mental capacity of a smaller child, yet they have the capabilities of, of an adult male, and that's not alone going to make it so that they're not held accountable for their crimes. So they do have to go through a psychological evaluation. The low IQ is not enough. They're, they're looking more for anything that would make it so that Tom couldn't understand what his lawyers were saying, couldn't understand the, the process for 
the trial or couldn't understand that what he did was wrong. And if they can check all those boxes, that he can work with his lawyers, that he can understand what charges he's facing, and if he understands what he did was wrong, then he can go to trial. And we just covered the case of the Xerox murders where the suspect there tried to claim that he didn't know right from wrong, but he admitted to some people before he committed his crimes that what he was going to do is going to get him fired, uh, and then he made efforts to try to hide from his crimes after the fact. It's, again, going to be very clear in this case that he admitted he drove the kids to a remote location where nobody could come across them because he knows what he was going to do to Ashton was wrong. So that's going to eliminate any insanity. He's also going to understand what he did and, and how it was wrong. So those boxes are going to be checked. Despite the low IQ, Tom's going to be cleared to go ahead to trial. This ruling led to Tom's lawyer seeking a plea arrangement. It took almost a year, but on October 1st, 2017, Tom pled guilty to all the charges against him. On October 20th, 2017, Tom was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He did not speak at his sentencing, but his lawyer provided a statement that explained that Tom was sorry for what he did, and after being treated for mental health problems during his incarceration, he has come to realize that he deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life for what he did. Ashlyn's family agreed to the plea deal and continued to suffer grief from the loss of their daughter. On June 24, 2019, Tom filed his own appeal in his case. In his appeal, he asserts that he should have been allowed to plead guilty to a lesser offense and face less prison time. He claims he was not aware of his rights during a psychological exam and was not aware of his rights when he was initially arrested. This was due to his low IQ and having just left a session in the sweat lodge. He also claimed he had inadequate counsel. Thankfully, his appeal is denied because it was eight months past the appeal's deadline and Tom remains in prison under the sentence of life without parole. And so we do see this quite a bit as well, where when somebody's going through the actual, either the court trial or the plea agreement process, the sentencing process, either it is true remorse or they're being told by their lawyer to look remorseful to try to get leniency. And so you'll see these fully cooperative I know I did wrong, I belong in prison, I deserve to have the door locked and the key thrown away, all that kind of stuff. But within you know, a year or two of, of living in prison and knowing they're never going to get out, this is life without parole, there's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel here, it definitely will change people's opinions and they have nothing else to do so why not file an appeal and it was interesting because he supposedly has this low IQ he supposedly is claiming he doesn't know what's going on but he's able to file his own appeal it specifically said he did it on his own without any lawyers or legal assistance and now granted he has a lot of time to, to study this and whatnot but it definitely appears at least he has the capability to, to file paperwork, but thankfully this paperwork was eight months late. And it would have been interesting if the paperwork hadn't been late, mainly because of the the sweat lodge accusations that he gave his confession, was, med, was read his Miranda rights, and gave his confession after the sweat lodge. It sounded as if the sweat lodge was something about four hours long and he was arrested after it was done like he basically walked outside and was arrested and the sweat lodge ritual is part of a 
Native American church that combines Native the Native American religion and Christian religions, kind of a combination of the two. But it's it said in some of the research that I did that they still use things like psilocybin to 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 go on you know, trips in their mind during the, things like these these sweat lodges. And I don't know if they did for this one, but anytime that you have a mind altering situation and even just going through a sweat lodge for four hours, you're going to be dehydrated and dizzy and lightheaded. And this is these are the types of the symptoms that somebody who's under the influence of alcohol or drugs is is experiencing. And those are you're not supposed to interview or obtain a confession from somebody when their mind is altered. So it would have been interesting to see how the legal system would have handled that if this appeal had been done in a timely manner and they would have been looking at some different aspects of it. The inadequate counsel, that's what everybody claims. The low IQ, I think, just by him doing this appeal on his own would have gotten rid of that, but it would have been interesting to see how they would have handled the whole the sweat lodge part of it. And Ashland's case once again highlighted the abject failure of tribal police departments to effectively respond in a timely manner to expedient-natured investigations such as kidnappings. In 2018, Ashland's mother helped pass the Ashland Mike Amber Alert and Indian Country Act. And I don't like using that term. And when you do research on these cases, the, the whole Indian stuff, that still comes up quite a bit. The federal department, I believe, is still called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they still talk about things being Indian country. Even during his confession, he had to admit to being an Indian who lived in Indian country something along those lines and and I am not one to use that term uh, because a it's not accurate at all it was assigned to indigenous people by European explorers when they thought they were arriving in the East Indies so it's not even accurate and and b it's it's been used in such derogatory terms for so long that I just don't normally use it so the reason I'm using it is because for some reason the federal government still uses it during their descriptions of of the areas that native people live in and and different legal aspects of it so that that's why it's called this ash and mike amber alert and indian country act and the law set aside money and equipment as well as training and proper protocol development to better respond to child abductions and missing children when it occurs on reservation land and there was something about, I want to say it was after this act was signed, there was some children that were taken. It might have been more of a, a parental kidnapping where somebody without custodial rights, the father, might have taken the children off a of reservation land. But that one occurred in Arizona. And then, but for some reason, they couldn't issue the Amber Alert in Arizona. It was issued for, I want to say it was Utah. And people in utah got this alert but then looked at it and said these children were taken from arizona and i don't know if the the father drove to utah or was driving through utah it was it was very confusing but again it it wasn't done the way things were supposed to be done and so it, it showed there's still work to be done and there's still issues surrounding investigating missing and murdered indigenous women and children uh, from reservation lands these issues are still prevalent but it is important that progress keeps moving forward and we don't forget the failures of our past to protect children like Ashlyn. So again, it's a terrible case. 
and I don't mean to not recognize the tragedy of such a young and promising life lost. I'm not using that just to further throw shade at, at reservation travel departments. As I said throughout the entire podcast, they are understaffed, underpaid, underbudgeted, under-equipped. They've got a lot of stuff working against them, but hopefully it's cases like this that as terrible as they are, they, they give some amount of change to the system so that more Native children like Ashlyn do not suffer her fate. But that is the case of Ashlyn Mike. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.